Hey there, and welcome to Brent Poland Podcast with me, Brent. And today I'm going to talk something extremely relevant to the world of the last uh, 13 months. And I'm going to talk about health, health policy, the state of the nation's health and the trends of health over time, uh, and the NHS. Obviously, our NHS is sacrosanct, and I want to explore the situation within it. I also want to lay out progressive green policies towards health, both physical, mental, and well-being in general. And that will split the podcast into two parts. The first part, laying out the current situation, including COVID. And then the second part, looking at solutions and looking at how we progressives within the green movement envisage that our healthcare can be moved forward in the future and instead of telling you what the problems are we will try and solve some of these issues um, in a green way rather than you know it's not just about the money it's about how we go about it it's about living up to the principles of the, what the NHS was founded on and that was where I would like to start is that the NHS as we know it was in many ways the reward for six years of hard fighting and suffering that the people of this country, so not the politicians, the people of this country are the ones that did the fighting. My grandfather was one of those that did the fighting. His brother, my uncle, great uncle, lost his life. And people suffered a lot during the war years. And of course, there was the vision of a social contract of we're building a better world. Because that's what, you know, our ancestors were told. And that was, again, what they were told after World War One. you know, homes fit for heroes, that there would be a social contract, that, you know, this is a country worth fighting for. And, of course, that vision was laid out by Bevan. Um, and there was an ulterior uh, vision laid out by the likes of Churchill, which was to go back to the old system. And the people of this country chose Bevan, and they chose to lay out that new social contract, of which the NHS was born. It was proposed in 1946 and was launched on July the 5th, 1948. And the NHS budget in 1948 was 437 million. Its current budget is 148 billion, with 63 billion set aside to deal with the global pandemic called COVID-19. The NHS was founded out of the ideal that good healthcare should be available to all, regardless of wealth. Now that is a socialist policy. And when I have people who have a go at me for being a socialist, and I'm a proud socialist, I'm, I'm of the left of the political spectrum, and so is the NHS. And I often say to people who are like, you socialists, you lefties, right, your NHS is a socialist policy. There's no denying that. Because, let me repeat that back, the NHS was founded out of the ideal that good health care should be available to all, regardless of wealth. In other words, it does not matter who or what you are, you get treated. And in essence, that lives up to the Hippocratic Oath. Because doctors, you know, that's the Hippocratic Oath. They, they treat people regardless of who or what they are. And it is such a humanistic ideal. And it very much fits in line with us as green progressives. The NHS also was free at the point of delivery and based on the clinical need, not on the ability to pay. 
1959, the Mental Health Act was introduced, which is a very important act, because it brings mental health in line with physical health, making new provision for the care and treatment of people with mental health a, a priority. So that's where they started with the NHS, and that's how the NHS was envisaged to begin with, and it has grown. It has grown into one of the world's biggest employers. It has grown into one of the world's best-known brands. And I remember watching the, the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in 2012, and I remember seeing the, the homage to the NHS, and I'm very proud to say that my wife is an NHS professional of over 17 years now, and I myself have such a healthy regard for my colleagues who work in the NHS because I, as a public servant myself and a teacher, I have nothing but admiration and respect for them. And equally, when I meet a nurse or a doctor, uh, we always have that kind of conversation of, I can't do what you can do. And equally, they look at me and they go, you deal with teenagers. And I'm like, ah, teenagers are fine. You deal with blood and you deal with people. We know, we all have our own individual stories about the NHS. And it is something that unites the whole country. In a country that is divided, there was a glorious moment. There was a glorious moment when we all clapped for carers. The sad reality is, of course, is that some of us meant that. And others, quite cynically, didn't. And we know that. We did know it at the time. But we saw confirmation of that when we saw, for instance, how nurses' pay rise was coming around and there isn't money for them. But then there's money for nukes, high-speed rail, Heathrow, democracy, backhanded contracts. It is galling, infuriating, and certainly I have nothing but, I suppose, not contempt is a strong word, but I have anger towards those individuals for, on behalf of those nurses because they deserve better. They have worked tirelessly, as many others as well, and I, what really upset me was the the way the society is set up now to, to go at each other's throats that why should nurses get a pay rise they still have a job why should nurses get this why should nurses get that and then the amount of times that people will go have you used the NHS yes what was your service like how were the nurses I cannot fault them I think they're absolutely and you know something one of the greatest heroines this country's ever had is the lady with the lamp this is not and this is nothing new that we have that we look up to people who are nurses. Um, I visited the graveyards of of, um, of Belgium and Ypres, and one of the one of the most visited graves is the grave of Nurse Nellie Spindler. He was a Jewish British nurse. She died at the age of twenty six. She was when a German shell hit her um, field hospital. She was she was used for propaganda purposes. Don't get me wrong. During the war, you know, revenge of, of you know, avenge Nurse Nellie Spindler. That meant, you know, she died in the front line in the war. You know, we've had the same with, you know, Florence Nightingale. So having brave, noble, selfless, and here's the key word, selfless, selfless, that is socialist. And when I'm always educating children on um, Germany, for instance, and about the Kaiser Wilhelm wanted to build an empire based upon conquering the world which basically influenced the likes of a young Hitler 
Um, the German people, one side of Germany was obsessed with battleships, build us battleships, build us battleships, and we'll conquer, conquer, build us this, and that was the, the right-wing, militaristic, imperialistic, you know, almost pseudo-fascist, which became later on fascism. The left in Germany didn't want battleships, they wanted hospitals and schools, and that's what I want. I want a health service that looks after people, a health service that is there for everyone, living up to its core principles, living up to its its desire to be free at the point of delivery, to not discriminate, to have every single person in this country being given the same health care. That's what drives me, is that, that equality, that social justice, and the NHS in me embody, embodies one of the greatest if not the greatest british achievement i would have it up there as the top of all the british achievements forget the empire the nhs after that i'd probably say basil jet yep he's probably the greatest britain you've never heard of it's the guy that invented the sewer system think of how many lives have been saved in the sewer system and another one of my public health heroes john snow not the guy from game of thrones but the actual um, the guy that discovered that alcoholics were not dying in London during the cholera epidemic because uh, he took the handle off the water pump and noticed that when the people stopped drinking the water out of certain um, wells, they were not dying because that's where the disease was in. And he is the founder of many of our modern um, health practices and, and, and understanding and science. That's John Snow, Basil Jett. And our NHS. You notice I don't talk about wars there. Because I'm not really enamoured with them. The greatest thing that came out of World War Two is the NHS. The greatest thing that ever happened in this country was when its people demanded that they want a better social contract. And for me, that's what has to come out of COVID. These lockdowns, the suffering we've gone through, the social isolation, all of the things we've sacrificed, those businesses have gone to the wall. They have to mean something has to be coming after this. It has to be so have to be worthwhile. We can't just be put at each other's throats. We have to create a better country after this. And one of the cornerstones of it has to be that guiding principle that the NHS was founded on. That every single person should be given free access to healthcare regardless of where they are in the country. Because what I'm about to lay out to you is going to show that there isn't that case. That the postcode lottery has got worse. And... And just throwing money at the problem doesn't seem to have worked either. That, Regardless of how much money is being spent, we still have these issues, these deep-seated societal issues of geography, of class, and almost divisions that have never been dealt with. And that means you cannot solve our health crisis without solving our employment crisis, our housing crisis, our so many are mental health crisis everything is connected and what i'm going to show you here is how everything is connected into the patterns north south rich poor depending on where you live in this country your life expectancy is different your access to medical care is different and it should not be the case it should not matter what postcode you're born in you should be getting health care which is free at the point of service and the same health care delivered to you as delivered to a billionaire. And that is where we're going wrong. Because somewhere along the line, that has slipped. Somewhere along the line, there has been a corruption 
of the NHS. It's called privatisation. Where the NHS has been whittled away, slowly but surely. And it's, it's key workers. Much like myself, I work in education. I've seen the same stealth privatisation. Where children are no longer. They're not children. They're, they're data. They're, they're exam results. They're, they're, they're a pound sign. Because every child that sits in a seat is a pound sign for a school. Well, the NHS is going the same way. And we know this. We, we've seen this for a while. And you cannot, we cannot turn around and say this is Labour or the Conservatives. It's both. It's Labour Conservatives. And of course we had a coalition of um, Lib Dems. The Green Party is the only party. I spoke of when we're not being in power. Who hasn't got their hands in this? All of them. Labour started privatisation. Conservatives have continued it. When you have Jeremy Hunt, who once authored a paper which was all about how to privatise the NHS, and he was a long-standing secretary of the NH of, of the health secretary, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to see how Virgin Healthcare, Serco, all those guys have got you know private contracts. We saw this. We saw this during COVID, did we not? The vaccine has been a success. Why is that? That's the NHS that's run it. The track and trace system, not so a success. Why is that? Well, democracy. Privatisation. And yet the whole free market model is meant to be based upon efficiency. It's only bent when the market decides. Yeah, the market decides not for the customer. The market decides for the actual person in control of the market. We've seen that so many times. We've seen that so many times. The NHS has worked efficiently. Its workforce are exceptional. They go their extra mile. They're vocationalists. And what the difference between a vocationalist and somebody who just does the job. I'm a vocationalist. I love my job. I would do it even if the pay was less. I have done it because the pay is less. Because <laughs> the pay is less. And many of the nurses, many of the people in the NHS are the same. They, they love their job. The problem exists is when... It's the insult. It's not just the standard of living because their wages aren't very high. But it's also to be insulted the way they are insulted. Constantly forced to do more and less of a budget. The changes, the bureaucracy, the satisfaction of their jobs has led to a recruitment and retention crisis within the NHS. And again, I, I lay that out. So that's the overall picture. Here come the statistics and facts. The NHS deals with over 1 million patients every 36 hours. I wonder how many of them 1 million patients are the same people. Which would be quite interesting. In a typical week, there's 1.4 million people will receive help in their home from the NHS. That's quite an amazing statistic. Full-time GPs treat an, av- treat an average of 255 patients a week. It's pretty phenomenal. The King's Fund updated their um, NHS workforce surveys in October 2020 and it reveals the following. We have a shortage of 84,000 full-time staff in mental health services and in NHS hospitals. There are 38,000 nursing vacancies. That is one in 10 posts. This is happening during the COVID crisis. The immediate workforce shortfall is so severe it requires at least 5,000 nurses a year to be recruited from overseas. And please tell me how Brexit has made that easier. It has not. It has made it an absolute nightmare. 
I had the conversation yesterday before doing this podcast with a friend who's a an ICU nurse. Oh my word, an ICU nurse. Talk about hardcore. Again, she laughs at me and goes, I couldn't do your job. And I look at her and I go, there's no way I could do your job. And what she was saying to me is that many of the colleagues that she had from Portugal, Spain and Italy, she mentioned particularly the Portuguese and Italian nurses, really highly qualified. Many of the younger ones who had donor families who came over, EU workers, have gone. That's an impact on our health service. We know that our health service requires migration. And migrants are great workers. I'm a migrant myself and I am never going to apologise for that. My grandfather was a migrant from England to Ireland. We are all grandsons, granddaughters, daughters, great, great, whatever you want to go. We've all had migrants in our blood force. And the NHS needs, it needs that shortfall. And of course, we do have a massive amount of our workforce, which is in basically Western Australia at the moment. You might as well consider that to be another city in England at the moment. We, you know, wanted down under. They're always looking for nurses. Canada, New Zealand, America, British nurses. And of course, we're even seeing now British nurses being trained, returning back to places like India and Pakistan. This is a problem we have. We're losing ours and having to then take in nurses from other countries. And that's difficult for them as well. There's currently a shortage of 2,500 full-time GPs, with projections of current trends suggesting this could increase to 7,000 shortage within the next five years. We are losing our GPs, and you tell me why. Stress, bureaucracy, overworked. It's not about the pay with them. It's about the conditions. It's about the way the service is not working to them. And they are, again, a friend of mine, GP, worked hard, geography graduate, became a GP, worked hard to become a GP. It's lasted six years. That's a huge amount of money to invest in somebody for them to leave because of, you guessed it, stress, working conditions. There is a major issue with nurse recruitment and retention. The overall number of nurses employed has increased, but it doesn't meet the increased demand. So when you hear the government saying we've increased the number of nurses, that's not what we need. We need more than that because the demand is increasing. Statistics from the Royal College of Nursing in 2020 reveal there are 40,000 nursing vacancies in health and care settings in England, despite an increase of 0.4% in nursing staff since 2019. So there's a shortfall. Either way they cut it, but of course when they go into Parliament they go, we've increased the number of nurses. They don't tell you the next part. Not in line with what we actually need to fulfil demand. The coronavirus pandemic has significantly increased the strain on frontline nurses. And that's another. So we're, we're already at a shortage. Now how is COVID going to affect that? It's going to increase the number of people walking, isn't it? So the Royal College of Nurses are really concerned that the extra responsibility, the pressure placed on nurses, could see the change of staff and a burnout. And I know what that burnout feels like. I work in public sector. I can tell you there's going to be a burnout in, in education as well as, as coming, in, coming in, 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 in many burnout in the police, burnout in, in, in any of those frontline services because people are, you know, we're not furloughed. We're in the front line of this. So this comes amid a rising second wave and even potentially a third wave of COVID patients. The annual pressure that accompany the winter and inevitable struggle to clear the growing backlog. So at the moment, these guys 
are just coming out of that. But, you know, you can imagine if you are a nurse at the moment who's gone through the last 14 months, to then be told by a government, you ain't worth more than a 1% pay rise. What an insult. Similarly, the shortage within nursing is taking its serious toll within midwifery and maternity support, with 71% of staff surveyed considering leaving the profession, and 38% seriously thinking about it. Seriously thinking about it. 71% have said they're considering leaving it. 38% said they're seriously thinking about it. That's not how we want our staff to be. The coronavirus pandemic hit the shortage of midwives, and one in five midwife posts were unfilled as of April 2020. A survey by the Royal College of Midwifery found 22% of respondents reported local midwife-led maternity units had closed. Additionally, 32% had offered stopped offering home births. We haven't. We even have non-qualified people filling in those, which the National Childbirth Trust is warning could be a red flag when you have safety issues there as having non-qualified people on labour wards. These are serious issues. These are really serious issues of understaffing and gaps that are appearing. There's widespread problems in training and recruitment of new GPs, the retention of current GPs. (laughs) The government in 2015 promised an extra 5,000 by 2020 GPs and they extended that date because they didn't meet that target to 2021. They didn't meet that target again. (laughs) In 2016 and 17, they kept repeating the pledge. By 2018, revealed the NHS in fact had lost a thousand GPs. So they are meant to be increasing them and we're losing them. And of course that means here's the here's the double whammy. What's happening to the number of appointments? Increasing demand, increasing number of GPs, decreasing. So what's that doing to the existing workforce, putting them under more pressure, which then of course means more will leave because they're put under more pressure and then you have a downward spiral less GPs, more people to see the GP, more stress on the existing workforce, boom they can't handle it decrease the number more increase the number of, of people wanting to see the GP, so there's a double a double whammy there and yet the government know this, they've known this for, for, for years, they know the issues and they won't deal with them, they'd rather go into parliament and say we've increased the number of this decreased the number of that, it's fine but the actual Boots on the ground are telling you something very different. When Mike Hancock took over Health Secretary in October 2018, he abandoned the 2021 deadline but reiterated the commitment to increase GP numbers by 5,000. GP numbers continued to fall by around 600 between 2018 and 2019, and yet the promise was repeated at the 2019 general election, this time 6,000 new doctors, he said, with half of them fully qualified with 3,000 trainees. So they keep shifting the goalposts, moving the years back and saying, we'll give you more GPs. The numbers keep going down. Their promises keep going up. What's the, the phrase? Over-promising and under-delivering. There it is, Matt Hancock. The latest NHS digital workforce data shows that the number of fully qualified full-time GPs in March was 712 fewer than in March 2019, a 2.5% decrease at a time of this pandemic we have a 2.5% decrease in number of GPs. So, if the original 2020 target was met, there would be 33,631 GPs by now. 
Instead, there are only 27,985 fully qualified GPs. That's not good enough, is it? So, there are more GP practices closing. That's another. We have 350,000 patients were forced to change surgery because we have GPs uh, closing. We know that in some areas that it's very hard to get an appointment because the number of staff isn't there or equally you've seen um, GPs closing, which then that's not that then forces some people in certain areas to have less access to a doctor because they may not be able to travel to a doctor. And you take your general customers who are, who are members of the general public who visit a GP. What's the age profile? Do they have their own transport? So how do they get to the GP if the GP's surgery closes? And that GP surgery is then another GP surgery a couple of miles away. I mean, that's the real-time situation what some individuals are dealing with, the post-COVID lottery. And here's the, here's, here's the jewel in it. In addition to staffing concern nationally within general practice, there are serious inequalities regionally. The Health Foundation in 2020 found that people living in the most deprived communities are less likely to have a GP appointment, with nurses substituting doctors in some areas. Doctors working in these communities are responsible for 10% more patients than GPs in more affluent areas. So you have again a double whammy. You have less GP coverage, you've got less GP surgeries in an area where there's more demand. Why is there more demand? Because the area is deprived. Why? Why is there more demand than an area that's deprived? Because their health is worse. Because why is their health worse? Because their, their standard of living is worse. Why is their standard of living worse? Because living in the north or living in, in communities that have lack of education. The whole thing is a spiral that's connected leads to postcode lottery UK. And it's not for, it's not what the NHS was set up to do. It's not what the NHS was set up in order to be free of the point of service. Everybody getting the same service. Everybody regardless of who they are. Two in five consultants, nay two-thirds of senior trainee doctors said there were daily or weekly gaps in hospital cover in 2019. That's according to the Nuffield Trust. Gaps in road has meant not sufficient senior, medic- sufficient senior medical staff to ensure quality and safety of training can result in junior doctors withdrawing from hospital, exacerbating staffing issues. <laughs> the UK ranks 27th out of 36 of the OECD of the wealthiest countries in the world for the number of physicians with 2.8 per 1,000 of population. Additionally, in England, there remains over 9,000 full-time equivalent job vacancies for doctors. And yet, how are we going to get them? Can we train them? We'll have to take them in from overseas. And how popular is that going to be? Emergency medicine continues to be regularly listed on the government's occupational shortage list. As the NHS entered the pandemic in 2020, there was a 17% shortfall in emergency medicine consultants and a 9% shortfall of respiratory medicine consultants. How prepared were we for COVID when there was a 9% shortfall of respiratory medicine consultants? According to the latest British Medical Association pay review, declines in doctors' pay has had a damaging impact on the morale of frontline NHS staff. Well, no kidding. We know that since 2010 that our medical staff have had their wages frozen and in real terms they're up to 15-20% to worse off than they were at the start of this current government. They paid the price 
for the bankers. They paid the price. Like I, as a public sector worker, paid the price. We had our wages cut and still we did the job. Our NHS was unprepared for COVID because they had everything cut to the bone. And the ones that are left in the service are struggling. God bless them and God help them. And fair play to them. And you can understand why many of them felt that the clap, giving them the clap for carers was a bit patronising. Especially when then they get a 1% pay rise. Not good enough, is it? A study by the Institute of Economic Affairs suggests that importing doctors from abroad will be essential for the next decade. And how is that going to go down in Brexit Britain? However, this could be complicated, of course. Because Brexit has predicted an increase in the competition for internationally for doctors. In other words, if you've got a good doctor, they can go abroad, go out elsewhere. Our own doctors our own doctors might say to themselves, I think I'll go to Australia, New Zealand, Canada. We've got an international market for qualified people. Why would they want to come to the UK if the UK is not going to pay them right or treat them right? That's how the international market for, for recruitment works, doesn't it? We don't have enough mental health professionals. Between 2009 to 2020, there have been a 12% drop in the number of mental health nursing posts. Oh, and guess what's increased since then? Exactly what has increased. The number of people seeking out mental health. The the demand for mental health services has increased, but there's been a 12% drop in the number of people actually being able to give you mental health services. A survey published beginning in 2020 revealed that the shortage of mental health professionals was a leading service at breaking point. 52% of the respondents said they were too busy to provide the care they would like, and 65% said on the last shift of the day they worked there was a shortage of more nursing staff. So you have a caring profession of people who want to care, who really like to care, but 52% of them said they were too busy to provide the care they would like. What they're saying is, is they don't feel they're doing the job because they can't get enough time to do the job because they don't have enough of them in the job. And that's breaking these people because they can't do the thing they want to do and that's help these people. How difficult must it be when you are drawn between a profession where you want to help people and you are stopped from helping people because you are running ragged in your bureaucracy and the silliness of this how does this care system not work in a world where the people who want to care are stopped from caring because they can't get enough time to care? The total number of mental health nurses in NHS England is down over 3,000 in real numbers since 2009. Worryingly, the number of mental health nurse staff who have had to take up sick leave because of their own mental health issues has risen by 22% in the last in the five years up to 2017. In other words, even before the global pandemic. Now, personally speaking, my wife is a mental health professional and I can I can back all that up. There's a really difficult job to do during a global pandemic, but even before that, there's a difficult job to do because you want to provide the care and attention to people that they deserve. But when you have targets and league tables and bureaucracy beyond bureaucracy in your way, you can't get to the person sometimes. You can't get to treating them. You pass them on, brush it off, and then they moved on. They fall through the cracks.
what I'm going to outlay for you um, now is I'm going to look at some of the borderline, the top line statistics of how the UK is coping and the trends in health. And the trends are this, is that we have seen a connection between deprivation and healthcare. And that's not rocket science. Um, where you are in the country depends on how long you live and the type of disease you get and the type of care you get. Um, there's an increase in concentration of old, older people in certain areas of the country, which is causing issues as well. And we're seeing a decrease in some diseases, for instance, um, and increases in others, like dementia is increasing exponentially. Um, however, we're seeing cancer rates and survival rates from cancer, you know, increasing. So there is changes. There's changes in medicine, there's changes in technology, and therefore diagnosis and changes in drugs that are, in many ways, you know, society's changing, so therefore our health needs are changing. Um, looking at the long term, the pandemic has exposed the fundamental weakness in both social care and public health. Social care has been neglected by successive governments, all of whom have favoured sticking plaster solutions to sustainable reform. That's Chris Whitty that said that. That's Chris Whitty. Yeah, coming from the television. I don't know if Boris is going to let him get away with saying that, but he has said it. It's his report I'm looking at. The virus also exposed the wide and persistent inequalities in health that have been accrued to cuts in public health budgets. The different differential effect of this pandemic on ethnic minority groups and deprived communities underlines the deep roots of health inequalities and the need for a comprehensive program of action of levelling up. Mm. So, what are we going to do? So, how are we getting different to other parts of the world? Our population is ageing. The UK's population is ageing less than other parts of the world, partly because of migration. Um, it's no surprise that the likes of Japan has the um, something like 28% of people who are over 65. The UK is currently at just under 21%. So, that's important to us because we don't have what's called the demographic time bomb as yet. And that demographic time bomb is, is the, the old age population compared to the young age population. And the important thing is the working age population as well. Whereas countries like Italy and Japan have an older population profile. Um, they're really going to have to think about how they're demographically balanced in the future. Whereas the UK, because of migration, that bad thing that people don't like, it's keeping our population artificially younger than it should be. But that will help our tax base and what's called the dependency ratio. That's one of the positive things about migration. Um, trend in life expectancy by deprivation. If you actually look at, um, there's a gap of nearly um, nine years, nine to ten years between living in a deprived area versus living in an undeprived area in life expectancy. That's an average. And averages tend to even things out a little bit. But I've seen some shocking statistics for places like Glasgow. There's one street in Glasgow with life expectancy is 54 years old. Two streets away, it's 86 years old. And yet, you look at the house prices. Million pound mansions, two streets away. You know, average house price, 70 odd thousand in the other place. It's no accident whatsoever. We saw that with, um, we saw that with the um, Grenfell. You know, Grenfell is in a deprived area of London which around the corner is Kensington and Chelsea. 
you know, that's, it can change street to street in this country, never mind. So averages are one thing, but when you, you see them laid out, there's a nine year difference between the rich and the poor in this country, how long you live for, on average. But averages do, as I say, even things out a little bit. And of course, if I look at the geographical spread, I'm looking at a map right now of where you find this variation of life expectancy in the north of England and the Midlands is where you find lower life expectancy. And if I was to overlay wages and obesity and all those other social factors, for instance, and diet and income and all of those economic indicators would be to be a strong correlation between those and life expectancy. So there's parts of, for instance, north northeastern England, which has 74 to 78 age bracket. And of course, the southeast, we're looking at 81 to 84 age bracket. So there's a strong correlation between north-south divide and life expectancy in this country, which is no surprise to many of us. Uh, the same goes for population structure. Its population structure is youngest around London, um, and the over 65 is, oh, well, that's quite interesting. It's around the coasts, and it's people retiring to the coasts, Norfolk, um, Cornwall, Devon. Again, your Lake District's not surprising when you know the second homes issue and the people who um, brighten the south, south coast has got an older population. But certainly the urban areas, and in particular London, have got the younger population, which in itself creates a very different health dynamic when you think about the needs of different age groups. Inequality and life expectancies for male and female, you know, males live a lot less than, than females in some aspects. That's the same globally, so it's not a huge gap in that. But we're talking about a three-year, four-year difference between uh, males and females, which is pretty normal for most parts of the world. Um, what's interesting is this um, low job quality and poorer health. So when you have a low job satisfaction, um, you report... 19% of people report to having um, poor health. So, in other words, there is a connection in the statistics between your low pay, that's a 12% low health, low job autonomy, 12% low health, low job well-being, low job security, low job satisfaction. All of those indicate poor health. All of those indicate poor health. So the quality of your job your autonomy, that's your freedom in your job, your well-being in your job, your job security, all connects to your health. Um, homelessness. Um, the rates of homelessness is is massive in London. Less so in North of England, ironically. So it's the one, one area where Northern England's not as bad. Um, but that's increased from um, 2 to 1,000 per households in 2010 to 3.5 in 2017, 2018. It's going to get worse. So that's increased over time, homelessness, especially in the London area. Uh, the fertility rates have decreased, number of, and that's an interesting one. There was an increase in 2001 to 2013. And that's starting to filter its way through schools now. And, and what that's important is because that's called the replacement level. The number of, you know, number of people replacing the population, which is, as I suggest to you, one of the reasons why our population is growing is because of migration. Um, but if we didn't have that migration, we would be in a negative population growth. Now, some people might turn and say that's a good thing, but not when they want somebody to look after them when they're older, not when we need people to pay taxes. Broadly speaking, you kind of need your population to be stable to do that um, and to have as many old people as there is young people. But 
we are having what's called a demographic time bomb if we didn't have the replacement people coming in because at the current rate we are at 1.5 fertility rate that means a, a couple a man and a woman have 1.5 children which means that's 0 0.5 per person per two because you need two people for replacement population and we haven't been doing replacement population in, since 1977 so um yep that's an interesting one um age of parenthood has increased by five years since the 19 1970s so now the average person uh, average man has a child at 34 and the average woman has a child at 31 um they used to be 26 for a woman in the 70s and uh, 29 for a man in the 70s as well so that's been steadily increasing and again people are marrying older that again has implications for health um, number of children and mortality rates have also declined as well so the number of deaths per thousand are going down but that's leveled out funny enough it's leveled out since 2010 so there was a decrease massively from 2001 to 2011 and it's leveled out under the current government i wonder why the big headline figures when it comes to what what is causing our issues is an increase in dementia dementia is on the rise and especially within women it is the single biggest killer of women We're talking 16 17 percent of, of female deaths are by dementia heart disease then and stroke and chronic, chronic respiratory disease comes after that in men it's actually heart disease which is the biggest killer then dementia then lung cancer and then chronic respiratory disease and stroke so what is interesting is that breast cancer and prostate cancer are both seventh biggest killers in men and women believe it or not uh, accidents is a bigger killer in men than it is women um well we do like to do rather silly things us men don't we like join armies go off and fight wars and drive fast cars yeah um we're less likely to go to the doctor and talk about our problems as well and so sadly as well we are more likely to unfortunately in middle age take our own lives which is another cause of male deaths um heart disease has fallen over time and stroke has fallen over time whereas dementia has increased and dementia is, is 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 a massive problem for us in the future because again when it comes into care how do we care for people with dementia on average we spend 20 percent of our lives in poor health this proportion has increased marginally with both men and women now that is shocking we spend 20% of our life in poor health. So we spend 20% of our life in poor health. Let me work that one out then. So um, if I live to an average of 80, I spend 20 years of my life in poor health, um, which is probably the age of 60 to 80 then, isn't it? I would hope. And of course, get this one. If you live in a deprived area, yeah, you guessed it. You get to spend longer of your life. Yep in poor health um, recorded prevalence of coronary heart disease has increased while stroke heart failure has increased so again a shift in 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 patterns of what is killing individuals cancer mortality has been declining since the 1990s but cancer has increased over the long term so their survival rates have increased the number of people diagnosed with cancer has increased but the mortality rates of cancer have decreased which is great that's great news and well done However, 
that's not the full picture the uk still lags behind all of the other major countries in the world of a similar nature so japan usa italy germany france canada and the uk has decreased yes at the same rate but has never caught those countries up so although we are doing well we are never doing as well as japan italy germany france canada and those other countries despite the money we spend on our nhs so something's not right there of course the number of radiologists has decreased and the equipment is i could go on diabetes has increased and we have a massive amount of diabetes but up to 12 percent of the population in parts of north northeastern england Whereas in places like London, we've got 3 to 4% of the population. There's a massive difference in where you are in the country to diabetes rates. And of course, there's a massive increase. It's gone up by 2% of the population. With a heavy percentage of people undiagnosed, we reckon that 20 to 30% of people with diabetes remain undiagnosed. And that has been the case since 2011. They, they haven't detected any more of these people. And they've known about this issue. There's undiagnosed diabetes. And yet the undiagnosed diabetes rate has stayed exactly the same since 2011. So the government have known about that, and again, not done anything about it. And what's that going to do? Well, diabetes, as we know, is a massive, massive, massive problem. COPD prevalence, again, has increased over time from 1.5% of the population to 2% of the population. And this one's personal to me because my own father suffers from COPD. <sighs> 50 years as a plaster and 50 Benson and Hedges a day. Thank you very much. And that's what's going to do your lungs. We always knew it would happen to him. So he's on an oxygen 16 hours a day. So, yeah. There's not much we can do about that. It's a uh, degenerative issue. So he's slowly but surely losing his ability to breathe. And eventually, unfortunately, he will claim my father's life. As it has doing to a lot of other individuals. Working class individuals. And looking at that map I'm looking at now. It's in Northern England, the Midlands. It's the deprived areas. And you've guessed that the areas where you're more likely to smoke. Yeah. They're all connected. Um, respiratory illnesses have come down slightly for the UK. But again, we are way behind all our leading nation competitors. Way behind. Mental health problems have increased. Um, what's really shocking is, is that 27% of people aged 16 to 24 who is a female have reported a mental health problem and males it is 10% now that's not to say that males don't have mental health problems it is a question of reporting there isn't it because as we know one of the biggest causes of deaths in young people especially young males is suicide so we have a as an issue there that we need to definitely get a handle on and as a school teacher I can tell you firsthand that those statistics do not surprise me that we have a very stressed out young population who are the most examined children in Western Europe. And according to all the well-being surveys, some of the most unhappiest. And it's not their fault. I work with these young people. They're amazing. The pressure and the stress they're put under. I mean, you look at the whole calling them snowflakes in the Satya. They just can't get a break. I, I, I have so much sympathy for the younger generation coming behind. And this tough love of where they need to toughen up and all the rest of it. They need a safe space. So when I was when I was a kid in this that they are people are living living in glass houses when they to be honest with you, they have no idea what it's like to be a youngster these days. The social pressures they have to deal with. The way school is now, school's an exam factory for them. Everywhere they go they have to perform. They're constantly, constantly on show. They have to look good. Here are kids we didn't give a 
damn what we look like. This lot here, every five minutes they have to check their phone. I mean, come on, give, give them a break, will you? The statistics are showing that it's not that these children are somehow weak. It's they're suffering. They're suffering. And you can go and excuse it there, these kids are soft. No. Nothing that their brains are exactly the same as our brains. They're just they're not getting a break. They're not getting a respite. And that means we need to listen. We need to, we need to sort this out. Because I tell you this. I can tell you this as a teacher of 18 years. When those people are 18 now have mental health issues when they're 18, what do you think they're going to have when they're 48? We have an epidemic of mental health crisis in our young people and we need to get a handle on it. Or this is going to be a massive drain on our resources when they're older. Massive drain on our resources. And think of all the secondary impacts that's going to have on our society. Severe mental illness, that's increased. Now remember what I said earlier on about the number of people in mental illness? Yeah, it's going down. But the number of cases of mental illnesses is going up. So what's that mean? We have a crisis, haven't we? A mental, a mental illness crisis. And these are all Chris Whitty's figures I'm, I'm using here. This is government. The government know all this. So the question is, what are they doing about it? <sighs> Suicide rates have gone down, apparently. Um, but they've changed within different year groups. And the largest issue is actually, ironically, males between the ages of 40 to 50. Yeah, that's my generation. Yeah. Smoking and pregnancies decreased. Oh my gosh, smoking and pregnancies is still a thing? Believe it or not, of course it is. One in five women are smokers at the time of delivery. And again, looking at my map here, I can see a strong correlation to where you are in the country, the Midlands and the North, higher rates of smoking and pregnancy, up to 25% in some parts of the Midlands and Northeast England. Northwest England as well. That has huge implications for the health of the child. Infant mortality is still the same. However, there's one problem with infant mortality. It's pretty steady. However, Pakistan and black African women are more likely to have infant mortality. I mean, three times more likely to suffer from infant mortality. So, yeah. And of course, Childhood obesity, talking about children, children are more likely to be obese in deprived areas. And you think, why? Deprived people mean that they can't afford food. Well, yes, they can, but the food they can afford is not your organically grown green leafy veg. No, it's the cheapest, nastiest stuff you can get and stretch your budget on. And I'm sorry, but that's the God's honest truth. There's a massive correlation between diet and income. And, and education levels as well. So we are seeing an obesity epidemic in poor children because it's a question of nutrition, it's a question of diet, it's a question of time, it's a question of many things. It's not just one thing, it's always a combination of things. Good news is smoking rates are declining in children. Yay, which is fantastic. Um, bad news is <laughs> drug rates are increasing and number of vaping is increasing. However, alcohol intake is decreasing, and that's good as well. So kids kids now, let me talk about kids these days, they, they smoke less and they drink less. So it's shifted into recreational, unnatural highs and vaping. So it, it morphs, doesn't it? It changes. Every generation's got whatever its poison is. Um, and certainly our own, our own younger generation now are in a very different place. 
uh, mental illness in children. I mean, these statistics are damning. Um, we have nine, 9% of children aged between 5 and 10 years old have a mental illness. And 14% of children aged between 11 and 15. And those are emotional disorders, behavioural disorders and hyperactivity disorders. And, and it's all increasing. Now, some would say because diagnosis is increasing. That might be true. But at the same time, what are we doing about it? And we schools, we schools are stretched. And guess what we don't have? School nurse. What's a school nurse? Gee, that's gone a long time ago, that has. <sighs> Cancer and accidents are now the leading cause of death in children. So, yeah, that, that there's positive in, in some aspects as well. And having taught for 18 years and lost some children to, sadly, all cancer, believe it or not. Oh, boys. Um, all quite tragic and quite heartbreaking. Um, death in young people is, is something that is it's heartbreaking. Um, some leaves, it's dif- difficult when you're around young people to deal with the loss of young people because the loss of potential is something, you know, you, you, you hope that you teach these kids right and then they grow up and they turn out to be productive members of society and live for 70 to 80 years. But uh, that's not always the case and it is heartbreaking when it happens. It is heartbreaking. Um, road traffic accidents and fatalities have decreased over time. And this is something actually, when you think about it, is true. But then I suppose it is true because there is less drink driving, thankfully. This is how we can change society. There's less drink driving. Cars are a lot safer. There's more traffic tramming measures. You can see that all the work that goes in, it's good stuff. All the, all the work that's in. But you think about how we've got road, road traffic accidents down. It's not just from a health point of view. That's from a society cultural shift, isn't it? You know, you know, if somebody's caught drink driving, the shame of that, and good, because it is a disgusting thing, a stupid thing to do as well. But it takes, it does take time, doesn't it, to filter through. But that just shows you that when we have a public health drive like, you know, road safety, and people take an interest in things like road safety, that we can drive down the statistics. And now, um, from the 1970s, we're talking about um, 400,000 casualties from roads, road deaths now down to 150,000 casualties. Um, that's a massive, massive decrease. And, and in thinking about it, there's more cars in the road. There should be actually an increase because there's more car ownership in the road. So the number of road traffic accidents has gone down. Well, actually, the number of cars in the road has gone up hugely. So that's a massive gain, a huge gain. And things like seatbelt legislation. So it just shows you what can be done when, when we actually put our minds to it. Heavy drinking's falling in young people. And that's a good thing as well. Um, two-thirds of adults are physically active, but activity levels are lower in more deprived areas and in older people. And again, it comes down to access to services and, and education. And, and where's your local gym? If you live in a deprived area, do you have access to all those facilities? Maybe not. Maybe. Maybe not. This one really annoys me. Cycling used to be the most common form of transport, but declined after mass motor vehicle adoption. So 1949, there were 25 billion vehicle kilometres travelled in the UK. In 2019, there were 5 billion vehicle kilometres. Now that's active travel. Now us Greens, one of the things we want to do is encourage active travel. Kids go to school now in Holland. What do they do? They cycle to school. They go, they go on school trips by bicycle. What do they do in the UK? It's bus, it's car, it's Chelsea tractor, it's mum, can you give me a lift to school? It's a half a mile away, why don't you walk? I'll be late. I only got out of bed. I get this every day. And even when the kids do cycle, they're absolute eejits on the cycle. For 
don't wear a helmet. There's no cycle lanes for them. And they're a nuisance sometimes. Get really angry when I see some kids on a, on a bike messing around thinking they're a danger on the road sometimes. So we do need, we do need to have a whole big conversation about let's get people on the roads. But then the roads need to be better. You need to stop the potholes in the roads. You need to have a better infrastructure, cycle infrastructure. It's like, if, where do you start? You can't just turn around and say, let's all start cycling when you, when you work 50 miles away from where you live. You know, we, we have to look at the whole society and say to ourselves, why don't people cycle as much? Because there isn't the provision for it, because our society's not set up for it, of course. So therefore, you know, we, we're, we are more obese. Why? We're less active because we're not cycling. We're not walking to, to work or walking to school. We're taking the car which then causes pollution, which causes air pollution, which then causes more respiratory illnesses, which then, I mean, the whole thing's connected. And this is what we Greens have to look at. We want to change culturally how we live and how we work. And, and we want to encourage people to be more active in travel, not just because cycling's good for you, because cycling will bring down health statistics. It will increase mental health because that gives you reduces endorphins. Look at the wins you get on mental health. You get people feeling happier in themselves. They, they feel physically happier in themselves. So they won't go to the doctor seeking mental health counsel. They were less likely to have a culinary, you know, um, heart problems because their hearts are healthier because they're cycling. They're less obese. They've got less diabetes. Oh my word. Think of all the things you could do if you had more people cycling. Think of how healthier would it be, mental and physically. But then think about the infrastructure you'd need to put in place to do that. And that's the problem with Broken Britain. <laughs> you, you can't just say, let's all start cycling because the infrastructure is not there for it. But the benefits, the health benefits would be exceptionally brilliant. Obesity levels in adults. This 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 one here is just absolutely shocking. And, and it makes me think about myself. <laughs> we need to lose a bit more weight. Um, Clint, <laughs> speaking statistically, in 2018... Um, 28% of the population is obese. That's bad. Um, combine obese and overweight, and you have 62% of the population. Now, I love the next bar in Chris Whitty's, you know, bar chart. Um, here, it says that the rest is normal. There's a tiny percentage of underweight, which stays exactly the same. A little sliver of about 2% that's underweight. Which means... There's about 36% of people are normal. <laughs> now, forgive me for that, but normal usually is kind of like 70 or 80%, but the normal people in the normal weight bracket are actually the minority because 60-odd percent of the population is either overweight or, or um, obese. And a tiny sliver are underweight. Now, from 1993, that was 50%. So there's a 10% increase. And that might not sound like much, but how's that filter in? That filters into your health statistics when it comes to obesity, diabetes. And yeah. And especially in our young. Oh my worst. Tell me about it. When I try and do cover lessons for PE lessons and I send the kids around a football pitch, you wouldn't believe how many of them cannot run. Not their fault. Mum and dad just take them down the Chelsea tractor everywhere they go. Oh, we can't walk these days because it's not safe in the streets. No, well, why is it not safe? Crime statistics. So there's a problem. So kids now, to keep them safe, we put them in a the car, we drive them somewhere and we take them. You think, hold on a second, when do they walk? When do they actually have to exercise? And of course, yeah, there's their lifestyle now. It's our lifestyle to become quite sedentary, but then it's also the buy one get one free go to the supermarket 
were encouraged the hidden facts of salt. I could be here all day on this. This is a separate issue in itself about how why we're getting obese, and it's a combination of, of factors. But it's going to cause huge problems for our NHS budget because it's going to increase mortality in certain aspects and treatments needed. Uh, sexual transmitted diseases have um, higher in urbanites than than in, than in rural areas, especially London, and they are increasing. Nice. Um, percentage of people who die in hospitals fall in steady over time, um, and that's down to forty five percent now. If people die in hospitals, and that means there's more palliative care, there's more people dying in their own homes with palliative care, um, and having more choice to do that. So those are sort of headline figures of where the state of the nation is with health and there was patterns there the patterns are deprivation equals less life expectancy less coverage we have issues of our healthcare system and our healthcare system it needs a lot of fixes now in the second part and I realize this is probably one of the longest podcasts i'm ever going to do but i've got started so i'm going to finish i'm going to have a break now in the second part of this podcast, I'm going to look at the Green Party policies and how we can fix our broken, in many ways, our broken health system. And it's not that it is broken by the people who are in the health system because God bless them, they're doing the best they can. It's how can we make it more effective? How can we make it work better for all of us? So, um, what I'm going to outline now is our green response. And I suppose what we have to then go back to is the original remit of the NHS. And the original remit of the NHS was quite simple. Is that it was free at the point of service. Now what that means is, is that it does not matter who or what you are, you get the same healthcare as everybody else. And that's what it was founded on. Meets the needs of everyone, free at the point of delivery, and based on the clinical need, not the availability. Now, what you have to then factor in is that as socialists ourselves, much like people who are progressive on the left-hand side of the political spectrum, it lends itself well to our philosophies, the NHS. And I suppose then you have to understand that people of the other side of the political spectrum they have an uneasy relationship with the NHS because they know deep down this country loves its NHS because they know deep down is that 
Although people want to acquire some wealth and they want to build their own homes, etc. When it comes down to it, people are good at heart. And they care at heart. And that's called society. And I'm a firm believer in society. And there are many conservatives, believe it or not, or paternalistic conservatives, we call them one-nation conservatives, who actually believe exactly the same as we do. However, then there's economic free market conservatives. And they can also be part of the Labour Party as well, when you consider that Blur and Brown continued to privatise part of the NHS. So this is not just a left-right-centre issue. I think it comes down to how you want to organise your health system. And there's no secret, there's no secret to it any longer, that since the 1980s, that the NHS has been a slippery slope towards privatisation. Of which, the Health and Social Care Act of 2012 was in many ways the Trojan horse that was going to lead to more privatisation. And at present, that means roughly, now the statistics in this are quite hard to come by because it's very hard to calculate what is private and what is public and what do you consider as a public service or a private service but there's a range of 20 to 25% of the NHS is privatised in different various forms and and that's increasing of course it's increasing and that means that our NHS is at risk and of course it's been previously weaponized by the Labour Party when at the last general election they, they tried to you know claim that the, uh, the Americans were going to come in and swoop in and privatize the NHS. Now I share those fears but I also share a respect for the British people in that if that were the case they would not tolerate that. However what I do share with the Labour guys is the stealth aspect that element of trust do i trust this current government with the nhs no i don't i don't because ideologically speaking the guys in charge of the current political party in charge of the country as we can see are democracy they are intent on they're intent on using the free market they're 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 liberalizers and NHS is to them quite a, a curious creature because not charging people for something that's not that's not the market NHS is in some ways the Americans some Americans see the NHS as a form of communism I mean they, they can't understand our, our, our healthcare system because you know in America it's all about success and doing well and you know that's why we see Obamacare for instance was trying to get 50 million Americans free healthcare <laughs> You know, if they don't have money in America, you don't get treated. And we know this. We know how sacred our NHS is. But that hasn't stopped the chipping away at it. That hasn't stopped the chipping away and the little bits of bits of it being hived off bit bit by bit. And scandal after scandal. But it's a long, drawn-out process. And it is very hard um, to stop it once it's begun. Because you can see that. You can see, I suppose, very slowly, like the frog being boiled in water, doesn't notice the changes. And since I was a child, we were hearing about the NHS being slowly, slowly privatised, and it is still happening. 
So at what stage will it reach that point where you say the NHS is no longer the National Health Service? We're not at that point yet. However, Boris Johnson's government has been accused of corruption and privatising the NHS by stealth, by operating a democracy and misbehaving, mishandling the pandemic by climate crisis Sir David King, a former government chief scientist. So one of his inner circle has actually come out and says, quote unquote, I'm extremely worried about the handling of the coronavirus pandemic, about the process which the public money has been distributed to private sector companies without due process. Oh yeah. He told The Guardian in an interview, it really smells of corruption. Mm, never seen that one coming. King contrasted the success of the vaccination program, yippee, well done NHS, carried out by the NHS, with the failure of the government to test and trace operation, hello Circo, which has been contracted out to private companies. Mm-hmm. The operation to roll out the vaccine has been extremely successful, well done. It has driven through exact, living through um, entirely our National Health Service and GP service, which is just amazing. Yet, we have persisted with the money for test, track and trace, given without any competition or without due process. And he has concluded, I am really worried about the democratic processes being ignored. Now, how relevant is that? Backhanders, hello, democracy, hello, lobbying, hello, who's got their hands on our NHS? What I'm saying, my friends, is quite simple. Democracy requires ever vigilance. And the NHS, we're going to have to watch it like a hawk. Because coronavirus pandemic is an opportunity to do things they may not have got away with. Now, I remember George W. Bush after 9-11. Oh yeah. And he decided he was going to have a war on terror. And they somehow got an excuse to go and invade Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. Bin Laden hated, hated Saddam Hussein. Iraq, nothing to do with it. Didn't stop the American president using 9-11 as an excuse to get a war. Now this is what worries me about our current government. They're opportunists. They're opportunists. So we have to be very, very careful. Very careful that our NHS is kept the way it is. And in fact, we as a Green Party would roll back the privatisation and bring it completely back under our control. Much like we would roll back a lot of this privatisation, which has utterly failed us. It's completely, utterly failed us. In every field, there is not one success in privatisation, I can tell you. From the railways we do not own, that are expensive, that are the worst in Europe, to what? Our energy companies, none of them are British owned. And they charge exorbitant amount. We've got fuel poverty. Water companies that don't fix their leaky pipes. Another failure there. 20% of our water doesn't get to us because it's in leaky pipes. What do they want? Tax breaks? Record profits? And yet, our water bills go up? Actually, how has privatisation been working for us? How really has it been working for us now? Who's it been working for? And who's it not been working for? We really need a better economic model. Because when it comes down to it, water, health, transport systems, energy, those vital things, we're the monopoly board. We're the monopoly board that's got mortgage written all over it. But you and I haven't seen a penny of that. And we're not getting the services we're due. And we've seen that during the global pandemic, haven't we? We've seen where the contracts went to and the job was not done and then we've seen exactly who mocked in. 
and then we saw the 1% pay rise. Not acceptable, is it? Not at all. There are warnings about, and there have been warnings there for a long time. And that means that we, as a Green Party, as progressives, and I would also include progressives as in any of the progressive parties, or anybody who's a progressive person, that if we want to keep our NHS the way it is, we're going to have to fight for it. We're going to have to be vigilant, and we're going to have to ensure that we stand up for our NHS, and stand up for our lungs, our nurses as well. So some examples of that would be, for instance, our the Green Party would roll back on prescription charges. We don't think you should charge for prescriptions. Now, I don't begrudge the £9, whatever it is at the moment. It keeps going up. When I see the drugs that you can get on the NHS, I have to ask myself, wow, that's a great deal. And I always say that when I go in for a prescription, and rare times I get a prescription. Um, I think it was um, antihistamines last time. Um, and... I often say that across the counter in a dispenser and go, that's that's not bad for what I'm getting. Aspen inhalers, I think it was as well. When you look at the price of inhalers in America and you look at the price we're paying, it's, you know, we do well. We do really well out of the prescription charges. But then again, I'm a middle-aged school teacher. You know, I'm not on the poverty line. Um, but people on the poverty line may not be able to afford those prescriptions. So again, it's a bit like VAT. It's a tax a taxation system, you know, on, on, on the poorest people. And they may have you know, not be able to work because, you know, they're not able to, to pay for it. So it's, it's a bit of a catch-22 in that one. But we would abolish prescription charges. And at the end of the day, we'd be able to replace that um, through the taxation system, quite simply. Sanitary products were no longer classified as a luxury. That one, <laughs> you know, that one's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, we have, we believe good diet is important and the promotion of good health in all schools. So we would like to make sure our school food is, is healthy and that children are educated to good food practices in school and that food technology is something that should be in the curriculum a lot more. And I know that from... Um, it was taken out of the options, for instance, in the some schools because the e-baccalaureate, for instance, it was, it was not as deemed an important subject. Well, cooking food or, you know understanding nutrition, understanding diet. If people understood how bad junk food was, um, then they would be less likely to use it. And I think education is one of the most important things. And we've got to start by, you know, educating young kids on how to eat healthy. But that means decluttering the curriculum and actually putting some stuff in the curriculum that they might need in life rather than a conjective... conjective I can't even say it. Conjective... Uh, something in English to do with a comma. I don't know, I'm sorry if I offended any English teachers out there, but I somehow got through life without a conjective subject, whatever you can even say it. Oh, don't even go there. But, you know, health, healthy food, how to eat, how to cook. You know, they, I take kids away on, on, on expeditions to, uh, world challenge expeditions to other countries. And, and I went, last time I went to South Africa, and uh, the kids choose the food and they cook the food. And of course, I tried to teach them how to bush cook and how to, you know, turn off all sorts of spices and everything else. Not a bit of it. What did they want for five days solid? And I, I swear, after the fifth day, I nearly went and had a, a blarney with them. Pasta, 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 pasta. Because why? That's why pasta. That's why during the first lockdown, pasta was sold out. Because that's all the kids know how to cook. All you got to do is boil it. They weren't going to do rice because rice is too tricky, apparently. Oh, you know, you got to know how to judge how to rice. They figured it out. 
it's just no like pasto pesto had carbonara i was like oh my gosh what am i having today oh pasta with tomato oh great what's that bolognese without the bolognese oh don't even go there unbelievable so we would educate when it comes to fruit and veg we would want people to be healthier eat healthier and as a result then we have less diabetes we have less obesity it'd be a win for everybody we believe physical exercise is beneficial for promotion of good health development so more time and resources to allow children to participate in sports and games at school on a daily basis but guess what in order to facilitate that we'd need better pitches better sports facilities and more emphasis on physical exertion at schools and you know i'm not saying the chinese are brilliant at everything but i'll tell you one thing about them they have their kids out running jumping and healthy they all do physical exercise first thing in the morning our lot physical exercise is getting out of bed somehow throwing their clothes on and grunting at you oh if i had my way i'd have a half an hour of physical exercise at school in the morning get their kit on go out go out into that field and run around for a half an hour and feel good about themselves honest to goodness it'd be so much better Imagine the, imagine the notes coming in from some parents going, my child is not running at 8 o'clock in the morning, his wife is barely awake. There's something wrong with our society when we haven't got our kids out running around or, or you know. I, do, I see them as like the walking dead coming in the first thing in the morning. It's like zombie land, our children. They grunted you. That's during lockdown. You, some of the parents were probably like, some of these kids would lie on the 12 o'clock in the afternoon during half terms if they could get away with it. We really need to enthuse and encourage our children to do more sports and games. Which means, again, the facilities need to be there. But imagine if we had our kids more healthy. Then they grow up to be healthy. And then we don't have a drain in our, 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 our health system. It's all connected. You can't do health without education. You can't do health without diet. You can't do health without well-being. It, it's all connected. And therefore, to solve our NHS crisis, we have to solve other crises which filter into the NHS. And that's green policy as well. So we would want, for instance, to be definitely putting the school nurse back as the school nurse. And again, it was another one of those things that was cut. We, when we, when's the last time I saw a school nurse? <laughs> Not practically. We, we, we sure, we have to buy in services. We have to buy, schools have to buy in services because we're practically private now as well. Which means we have to buy in a nurse rather than a nurse provider for us. Think of what that nurse could be doing, talking to the kids about mental health, about education, talking to girls about their bodies, for God's sake. Where, where, where is that gone? Where is that gone? Where, where is that quality of you, young person? They may not want to go to their own doctor and they talk to the school nurse. When we had a school nurse, the school nurse was a very busy person. Because young people are, you know, they've got issues. And they're not always wanting to go to an adult that they know. But talking to, a, talking to the school nurse could have been the perfect place for them. A lot of schools don't have school nurses any longer. So who gives them the advice? Google? That's just a, this is the whole thing. Cutting corners. Putting things out like the school nurse saves a couple of quid. But what does it get you in the long run? It gets you problems in the long run. But then you have to spend more money solving. So we think that we should have... Um, we should not be taking doctors from other parts of the world. And earlier on, in one of my earlier podcasts, I said about, you know, we need a shortfall of doctors. We are competing for for doctors from overseas. But here comes the problem. You mean, you mean doctors are not a finite resource, infinite resource. They're a finite resource. You know, you, you, there's only so many in the world. But if we're taking doctors from, from countries that really, really need doctors, and I know our percentage of is, is 
27th out of 36th in the OECD. That's bad. Don't get me wrong, that is bad. But in comparison to Sierra Leone, or war-torn Yemen, or parts of the world where <laughs> puts a doctor between 100,000 people, one maybe, you know, we, we, we really do have to be very careful about, you know, where we take our staff from overseas. And the Green Party would ensure that healthcare skills are shared between countries. You know, we, we, we should be not. We're internationalists, the Green Party. And I think what you, you pay and you get back as well. And I think we should be bringing in people from overseas, but also we should be sharing with them as well. And I love, I love when I see some of my ex-pupils who've turned out to be doctors. And I know one particular, I'm so proud of him. So, so proud of him. He, he went to Africa on one of our um, uh, school ex- expeditions. And he wanted to be a doctor afterwards. And he's working for Medicine Sun Frontier. And I've spoken to him recently. And he, he, he he's, he's, done his, he's done his bit overseas. He's brought it back into the UK. And I asked him a question. He says, Were you a, are you a better doctor from going overseas? Infinitely, yes. Infinitely, yes. The things that he learned. Skills that he learned. Uh, and even the different types of medicine. And, and even just as a person as well. He's a happier individual because he has it's had travel. He's, he's, he's taken his skills vocationally it goes back to that vocational thing as well that we have an obligation the same as the medicines the same as the vaccines this 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 whole hoarding this this vaccine nationalism it absolutely grinds my gears because it's so short-sighted okay we'll vaccinate our people we'll open up we'll start going abroad on holidays countries aren't vaccinated new strain comes back boom we're back to square one. Oh, come on guys we can't do this we cannot do this we're human beings after all we've got to live in the same world and this is short-sighted again. We, 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 we solve one problem in the short term to create a big one in the long term. That's just the old way of thinking, isn't it? And that's just the old way of thinking. Um, we think senior staff who are in a position of influence are required to declare their influence in their interests that may have a conflict with their role in the NHS. That's something that happens when people connect to the NHS. Who are you? What is your it's lobbying and vested interest? We want to stop that from happening. We want to be with people to be very clear. The Green Party recognises mental health service in the UK overstretched and that people are not being assessed quickly enough and that many people needing treatment are not getting access to those services at all. We recognise the importance of child and adolescent mental health and ensure all services to support them are properly funded for the people who need them. And that is something I cannot forgive this current government for cutting CAM services and cutting child's mental health services. I cannot tell you the amount of times I have sat down with a child and had to refer them or talk to them and think where do I go with this who do I talk to their parents where can they go for help and it is difficult because there's just not the support services there and I can see these issues now in their 13, 14, 15, 16 years old we have a mental health crisis in our youth the statistics bear it out but I can tell you from the chalk face I can tell you from working in education for 18 years that it is it's, it's a crisis point and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking seeing young people suffering and going to work and I send them, what can I do for them? What can I, as their teacher, do for them? What can the parents do for them? They need the mental health services, but they also need community support. So many of our young people are lonely. Many of our young people are lonely because they don't have youth clubs. Many of our young people, don't, young, they don't have facilities. They're living in the bedrooms. And, and social media can take you so far, but it's nothing near the connections we're talking to a human being. Social media is great. But it papers over the cracks. It's papers over the cracks. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't create that, that human bond that you need person to person. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I've, I've talked to people. I mean, maybe because I'm a middle-aged guy. I've had a midlife crisis. 
or maybe I reached that stage in my life when, when I needed to sort out my emotions. And believe you me, I've got plenty of emotions that need sorting out. Legacy of the children of the troubles. And I did talk to somebody. A couple of sessions. And it was very helpful. And I was very grateful of it. I was very grateful of it. And I was struggling. And the hardest part was actually admitting I was struggling. Especially to my wife who's a mental health professional. There's <laughs> no way I could talk to her about it. She's the wrong person. <laughs> Pussman's holiday. But it was, a, it was a good thing to do. But I was so grateful that the service was there. And if that service was not there, then think of the consequences of what might have happened. Stressed out teacher, leaves his teaching profession. You're, you're short one, one, one teacher, experienced teacher, during the COVID crisis. Why? Because the mental health service wasn't there. Because somebody could cut it back. Because there was a waiting list. They see the type of things that happen. And the type of secondary consequences to to cuts and to reorganizing this and the bureaucracy of that and to losing. We really do need to prioritize our young mental health because we are going to have a mental health time bomb that's going to tick off in, in a generation or so when these young people grow up. And then we're going to have to pick up the pieces. It's going to cost us a lot more. And, and it's not just the economic. It's going to cost us a lot more in, in the heartache and, and the broken parts of their lives that we have to try and put back together. And it's harder to put Humpty Dumpty back together when it's had a great fall. It would be better to tell Humpty Dumpty not to fall in the first place and give it better advice. Stay off the wall, Humpty. Don't you get on that wall, Humpty. Get away from that wall. Thank you, Humpty. You didn't go on that wall. Because putting the pieces back together is a lot harder than avoiding the fall in the first place. And that's what we want to prioritise mental health with the Green Party. Breastfeeding. I know this is a man talking about it, but my wife and I... You know, we 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 cheat my wife, the medical professional. She understood the, the nature of breastfeeding. But one example, she doesn't listen to my podcast, so I can actually say this. She never listens to my podcast. She says she hears it all the time anyway. Um, we had a tongue-tied child. Now, this is going to be very um, weird for me to say this, but apparently, I'm tongue-tied. Um, who knew? Apparently, not me. Um, apparently, not my mother. Uh, but it turns out that it's inherited and it's passed on. And my daughter, my first daughter, was born with tongue tied. And my wife had huge problems with breastfeeding, huge problems getting the latch, and huge problems with it. And she persevered because she knew, she knew all the statistics and all the facts and figures. Highly educated person, two PhDs, medical professional herself, knows all about breastfeeding. And you know what the problem was? Nobody wanted to take responsibility for who was going to snip my daughter's um, tongue. It's something that could have been done for birth. But guess what? Postcode lottery. In the area that we live, they don't do it. So, what are they losing out on? Now, my wife and I finally sorted it by going to somebody who does this little operation. And that's they spotted that I was tongue-tied and went, yep, you're tongue-tied. And um, obviously, it had an impact upon you when you were young. Which I have no memory of, thankfully. And uh, But there we go. And... Uh, it sorted the problem out, and my wife was able to be able to breastfeed my daughter until she was about one, one and a half. Second time round, second daughter was born. Guess what? She was tongue-tied. We knew what to do straight away. Our NHS failed us. Our NHS failed us on that. Because the midwives come out, and then they come out to visits, and they were like, Oh, we think she might be mildly tongue-tied. Well, what can we do about that? Well, we don't do the operation. I'm sorry, but that's not good enough. Breastfeeding is such an important thing. Such an important, important medical and health. And yet, it's not enough being done. I know that. 
This is a man saying this, and and I am I'm not even I'm not even going there. The fact that my gender's got anything to do with it, but I fully appreciate how important breastfeeding is, and how important it is for the well-being of the mother and also the well-being of the child. And I know how, having seen my wife suffer through this, and again, thankfully she's not listening to this podcast. Um, how difficult it was for her, and how difficult it is for a lot of women out there. And the services just aren't there. So it is something that the Green Party recognises and would make a priority in being able to make sure that mothers are supported and that mothers have facilities and that breastfeeding is given the full support of the NHS it should be given and removing any of the stigma attached to breastfeeding in public. Now, as a former person who was stigma of breastfeeding, my first example of breastfeeding, I was 18 years old. I was in South America on an expedition, as you do, um, when you're a geography graduate, and um, there I was on a bus from the Andes. This little Amerindian woman sits down beside me, and I was a lost little Irish boy in the big bad world. And all of a sudden, uh, this woman just takes her shawl off, exposing herself, which at the time, you know, as a young teenage boy who had never witnessed the world, um, I was kind of like, okay, what do we do with this? And I was, I was embarrassed. Of course I was. I had no idea what was going on or whatsoever because there was no internet back then. And of course all the, the boys in the um, in the expedition with me were looking around at me going like, awkward, what do you do here? And I'm, that was a three-hour bus journey <laughs> in the Andes, which was difficult enough as it was considering there were about 25 people on the roof and uh, it was shaking all over the place and <laughs> there was this mad music in the background. I digress, but I can say that I have been there myself as a young person and, and not knowing about, obviously, breastfeeding a natural thing. And that was the 1990s, but now it's a normal thing. And it's a perfectly normal thing for me now as a father to turn around and say that it's a perfectly normal thing for me to see a woman breastfeeding her child. And and that takes education, doesn't it? It takes, takes experience, but also takes the destigmatization of it as well. Um, we need to develop a new health consciousness, which... We need to challenge the vested interests to promote personal, social and political changes need to improve the states of our health. And that means it comes out to the fact that health needs to be front and centre and that it's not about the money. It's not about the jingoism. It's about the well-being of people and it is about valuing health connected to all those other things that health is connected to from where you live to who you are and that's how we need to change the health consciousness we call it and that means we put services which emphasize endless prevention and health promotion and the development of the individual so if the person is healthier they're less likely to use the health service so how do we make the person healthier we promote health promotion we educate people we develop their confidence um the self-reliance it's, it's prevention better than the, the cure and that would save the NHS so much more money because happier people with better well-being. You saw that with job satisfaction. If people are happier in their work, they've got more time on their hands, they're less likely to have mental health stress. We believe that we can run a more efficient service because we can create happier people. And happier people are less likely to be ill. And therefore, if the happier people are less likely to be ill, they need the NHS a lot less because they're more confident, they're more empowered. And they have more awareness over their own and more control. That's more freedom over their own health as well 
And that's what we're talking about. And that means coming up with new economic models when it comes to using quality of life and health indicators. That, you know, I looked at all the statistics I talked about in the previous. And yet the government knows all this. And what's it going to do about it? It's, this is the thing, you know, you, you, you cannot solve a health crisis without solving an education crisis, without solving a recruitment crisis and a job crisis and an economic crisis. The whole thing's connected to a transport crisis, <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing is a holistic approach to it. And at the moment, you have a sticking plaster over a gaping wound, whereas we want to do things differently. And that's, that's again, where we think we're different from a, from a green point of view, is that we are different. We don't see the money. We see the people. I mean, if you talk about privatisation in NHS, why should the NHS not be privatised? To answer any of the questions that people out there are thinking, well, privatisation in NHS makes it more efficient, the NHS can be better. Um, in contrast to NHS providers, private companies' first duty is to make profit for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. This profit comes out of NHS funding, leading to concerns that, in order for to extract this profit, private companies will have to reduce the quality of patient care. In other words, known as cutting corners to make profits, as they've done in other sectors. Indeed. Our water quality has not increased, but the profits of the water company has. But our bills have gone increased. The competitive tendering process introduced by the Health and Social Security Act is massively expensive to administer and introduce unnecessary overhead costs. The bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the ever-expanding bureaucracy. This system undermines NHS providers because private companies will focus on profitability, low risk, and straightforward elective plan treatment, such as hip replacement, and leave the NHS providers to cope with the complex more expensive services such as A&E and intensive care. In other words, they will cherry pick. They will cherry pick what services they can give to make the most profit and leave the NHS, well, carrying the can of the more difficult stuff. Before competitive tendering, NHS providers used any surplus from one area to support a more expensive service they delivered. Now there's a danger when the profitable NHS services are contracted out to private companies, established NHS providers, even those providing core services, like any, may not survive in this market environment. Private companies used to rely on NHS to train nurses and doctors. These companies rarely contribute to the cost of training, but guess what? They draw on the NHS trained workforce and add to the problems of severe staff shortage. So you have the private sector poaching NHS trained doctors and nurses, thus increasing the risk of losing more in the NHS. And then when you have the government giving them 1% pay rise, well, those private healthcare companies will be more lucratively attractive to somebody. And I'm not saying that pay is important, but when you've got to feed your family, pay is important. And clapping isn't going to feed your family, is it? Mm-hmm. When the contract for service previously delivered by an NHS provider is won by a private company, the staff who have been providing that service lose their employment with the NHS. If they're re-employed by the private company, they may have no guarantee of retaining the same pay in terms and conditions they had with the NHS. This also leads to uh the revolving door. Unfortunately, there's a revolving door between public and private sector, with the exchange of staff, including some case ministers between the Department of Health and the NHS, um, and private health companies and consultancy firms like McKinsey and Bupa. This blurs the boundaries between the public and private sectors. Have we seen that before? And public and private interests. Staff switching between public to private, so there's no real difference between them. These are our issues that we have. And that all comes about because of the Health and Social Care Act. 
And one of the things the Green Party will do is we will repeal it in its entirety because it is the market brooch. It is the stealthy privatization of the NHS through the back door. And therefore, this shows that there's evidence that this has led to a large number of contracts being awarded to private providers. Now, the defenders of that would say the percentage of, of money given out to private contractors in the NHS has remained steady during the last 10 years or so. That might be true. But, as we've seen with the global pandemic, and we've seen with Serco, and we've seen with this government, I'd like to see what's going to happen in the next few years with that. I'd like to see if they cannot afford to give, if they cannot afford to give nurses more than a 1% pay rise. What does that tell us? So for us, for the Greens, healthcare is not a commodity to be bought or sold. The National Health Service must provide healthcare free at the point of need, funded through taxation. It must be a public service fund, funded by, run by, and accountable to local and national government. And devoid of all privatisation, whether privatised administration, healthcare provision, support services, or capital ownership, the NHS is concerned with healthcare provision and should not be subject to market forces, either internal or external. That is our commitment to the NHS. Exactly what was promised from day one. Free at the point of service. For the need of all of us, not a few. And that means, for us, to a large extent, the factors where we live, the state of our environment, the genetics, our income, our educational level, our relationship with our friends and family, all considerable impacts on our health. However, willingness and ability to care for vulnerable members are essential features of a compassionate society. Free market mechanisms cannot adequately meet healthcare needs or effectively constrain costs. Proper health care for all and the responsible use of resources both require the continued and provision of well-financed and well-publicly-funded healthcare services. And that is a commitment that we would have as Greens. We want to keep the NHS in our hands owned by the people, for the people, by the people. Well, there's something in that one, isn't there? And that we've seen throughout this pandemic. How our NHS has performed admirably. And like the people of this country who rewarded with the NHS as a result of their sacrifices during World War II, this great healthcare scare that we've suffered in the pandemic and the implications it has had on our lives, our livelihoods, our freedoms. Surely, the time afterwards is the time that we reflect on what was good. And that is not trident nuclear missiles. That is not democracy in circo. That is not, you know, get Brexit done. Because it was the second most important issue at the last general election. Surely it should be the most important issue at the next because there's nothing more important in this world than your health. Billionaires and paupers don't take their money to the grave. Your health is the wealth of the world, as somebody said to me once. Your health is the wealth of your the wealth of the world. I mean, you haven't got your health. Your health and your family. Your health and your family. It's got to be the two most important things. And we have something fantastic and beautiful in this country, and it's got to be kept that way. It's got to be kept that way. But in order to keep it that way, that requires that people are vigilant and it requires people do not take kindly to the promises made by charlatans who will promise you to save the NHS while secretly behind your back they'll sell it off and that is individuals 
wearing not just blue, but red as well. We are the only party who has not had a hand in any of this. And one of the things about us as Greens is we care. We genuinely care. It's what marks it out as what we are. Maybe we're a bit idealistic. I'd, I'd agree with that. But for us, there's nothing more important than health and well-being and happiness. And the NHS is something that we we feel we need to preserve. Not just for, for ourselves now, but for future generations. It is our inheritance and it is our legacy. And it is something that is well worth standing up for. Thank you for listening, my friends. I'm sorry this is probably the longest podcast I'll ever do, but health is one of those things you just... It's that important. It's going to take that length of time to go through. And I could have said a lot more about a lot of things. Maybe I'll do another one in, in six months' time on an update, updated version. NHS Part 4. Thank you and take care, my friends. Thanks for listening, my friends, and if you enjoyed what you heard, then please like, share, and subscribe. And any feedback that you can give me would be more than appreciated. Teachers love feedback. You can find me on Twitter at BrentPoland1. You can find me on YouTube at BrentPoland1. Funny enough, Instagram, my account is BrentPoland1. However, my Facebook is my local Arrowwash Green party, and that is Arrowwash Green at Facebook. Thank you again, my friends.